The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and I'm joined by, I guess I should call it the dream team. It's Dr. <laughs> Omi Congo Dabinga <laughs> and Raphael Sunshine, a.k.a. Wraith. Uh, and these two guys have been on together before, and I am so glad to have them back. Their expertise and brilliance are needed on a heavy news day like today. So let's start with you, Rafe. Uh, you're from New Jersey. Chris Christie's from New Jersey, former governor. He's out talking a lot of smack about Donald Trump. He says, look, if you're going to debate this guy, you need someone on the stage uh, who can do to him what I did to Marco Rubio. Because that's the only thing that's going to defeat Donald Trump. What are you feeling about Chris Christie, who obviously is visiting New Hampshire and is trying to, you know, I guess, take the temperature of the Republican Party and the Republican base and saying he's the guy that can stand up to Donald Trump? He's half right. Um, he's right that the only way to beat Donald Trump is to go toe to toe New Jersey against New York City <laughs> and really lay into him. But Chris Christie is not the guy to do it. I would say that I have a better chance of getting the Republican nomination than Chris Christie, and I'm a Democrat. Uh, he oh, has no goodness. base in either party. His main base of support is the booking agents for CNN and MSNBC because he talks a great game. But, Ariva, the funny thing about it is his analysis is exactly correct, except that he's not the person to do it. You cannot do this parsing that everybody's doing. Like, I kind of dislike him. I kind of disapprove of him, but I'll vote for him if he's the nominee. I would say right now, Trump is the overwhelming, if not 100% favorite to win the Republican nomination, even if he's in jail. I don't see anybody, including DeSantis, who's in a position to do what Christie says ought to be done. Now, Christie will try it, and he'll get some great coverage on cable news, but he's not going to win a lot of votes. But he might show the way for somebody else to finally figure out how to do it. Yeah, that was going to be my question, uh, Dr. Dabinga. Might Chris Christie, with his sharp attacks mm -hmm. and his fearless you know, personality, as it, what he says, you know, he's been a supporter of Donald Trump. He's been all over the board. But let's assume he really is ready to go in on him. Might that, you know, clear the way for someone else that's, less chaotic or less, you know, a, a chaos agent like Donald Trump to win the Republican primary? I think it's possible. And I think that one of the things that, that Christie's doing is he's trying to make a pitch towards independence as well. You see in places like New York, you have more people who are Republican identifying as independent. And people are seeing that, you know, independence can be a, a very important swing vote, depending on the state that you're in. I think it's, I mean, we have to know he went after Rubio, yeah, with that takedown, but then he finished like six in the primary or something, you know, just a few days later. So, you know, Rafi is absolutely right when he says that he's not the one. But that blueprint does matter. I mean, everybody's putting all of this attention towards Ron DeSantis, but he's never got he made a couple of references about Stormy Daniels here and there, but he hasn't fully taken on Trump. And when you look at Nikki Haley and Mike Pence, they are going to go nowhere near attacking Trump. But I think that they are making room for somebody, somebody we just haven't really paid attention to who could really come in and do some real damage if they see that the Christie model could work, even though it's not going to work for Christie. Right. Yeah, it, it's pretty clear. He's just grasping for some relevance and sitting on cable news on Sunday doesn't seem to be doing mm -hmm. it for him. You know, maybe the way it was a year or two ago, just not enough eyes on him, not getting enough attention. So let me take a punch at Donald Trump. We'll see what happens. Obviously, uh, we're going to continue to follow that story. But I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Domingo, about this, this 
complaint, this parent in Florida, not surprising, Florida, talking about uh, DeSantis, <laughs> she says, look, she didn't even want second graders doing Black History Month to watch a movie about Ruby Bridges and you know her story about integrating the public schools in the South in the 1960s, that that movie is so heavy, so deep, so negative, she says, and it's inappropriate, according to this parent. It's just going to teach little white kids to hate Black people, or it teaches them that white people hate Black people. What do you think of this parent's complaint? There are so many places I want to go with this, but just the the, the, the first, the, the main things that are bothering me. When I was teaching on the K-12 level, if I was going to show something that might be inappropriate, I would send a letter home that a parent could deem inappropriate. I would send a letter home to this teacher, to the parents, saying what's going to happen. And the parent had the option to not have their child come watch that class. You know, that was a singular parental decision. These parents now, they feel like they're so empowered that they can stop all students from seeing something that they might be uncomfortable with. And this whole thing about making white people feel bad, why not take the Ruby Bridges story and focus on the one white woman teacher who decided to educate her in a school and everybody else was protesting? That was a white upstander, not a bystander. Why not celebrate her? So these people are grasping at straws. You see across the country there, trying to push these parental rights bills for, for teachers, for parents to know what's in the curriculum, to parents to know what's in the budget, for parents to know what their kids are learning every single day. How about you show up to parent-teacher night? You can find out all of that stuff. How about you read the budget at a school board meeting? You can find all of that stuff out. But here we are, and this is what I've been warning white parents about. This is my last thing. If you're not gonna speak up when people are coming for the teaching of black history, it's just a matter of time before they come for anything else that relates to your history as well. Because we see now they're banning books on the Holocaust like Mouse. We see that a teacher got fired for showing David, you know, the Michelangelo statue in art class. That ain't black history. So once they feel like they got control of the agenda, they're going to come for everything. And so it should not just be black people who are outraged about this. It should not just be people who are, quote unquote, liberal People are coming for control of our school and classrooms in every way, shape, or form, and we have to stand up and fight it. Yeah, you know, what's what's crazy about this, and, and thank you for saying as a teacher, when you did K-12, through you would tell parents, look, we're going to show this movie or we're going to have this lesson, and parents could decide to keep their kids at home. Hey, let's be honest. In the 60s, when Ruby Bridges was trying to go to school, a certain number of white people did hate Black people. Yep. That doesn't mean they hate black people today, but Rafe, how are we going to teach what happened in this country if we try to whitewash that fact? That's just factual. The teacher isn't making that up. Ruby Bridges didn't make it up. She was just a little girl in the first, second grade trying to go to school. Why are parents, white parents in Florida in particular, this parent in particular, so afraid of their kids learning that history? Well, I don't know if you saw the Rosa Parks story where the publisher agreed to make the story read as follows. Rosa Parks got on a bus. They asked her not to sit in that seat. She refused. She went to jail. Boom, she's a hero <laughs> with no mention of race whatsoever. I did see that. Now, what it does indicate is the power of black history, just like the power of the vote. You don't try to take somebody's vote away if you're not afraid of their vote. And you don't try to bury history that could affect the search for equality today. So this is a this is a huge challenge. Now here's my concern that I really 
gets me going is publishers should not back down in the face of this. That's right. They should not be sending two versions of the Rosa Parks story, send one to California and one to Florida. And right. the states that are teaching the real story should make sure that that has some consequences for these publishers. They should, If you back down to this stuff, it really sends a message that commerce is the only thing that matters. I, mean, I don't think those publishers care about whether what is taught. They want to get their books in there. Well, I think it'd be nice if a few of them said, well, I think maybe you should find another publisher, you know, because we're not going to change it or we're going to send it in, take it or not. But that, yeah, that's I, I saw that story that, that you talked about where publishers trying to get the business from yeah. the Department of Education in Florida, right. thinking they're going to get ahead of, of, you know, the Florida, you know, anti-woke laws. Say, well, we'll just tell the story of Rosa Parks and we won't even mention the word race. As you said, she just got on a bus. Someone didn't want her to sit in a seat. They said, get up. She said, no, I'm not getting up. And next thing you know, Rosa Parks is an icon. We don't know how. What an inspiring what. story. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, well, you're sitting there, even a second grader would be going like, why are we reading about this lady? Like, <laughs> like, who is this chick? Like, what right. did she do? My mama didn't get up from the bus yesterday, right? <laughs> <laughs> she ain't in this book. That's right. It's so insane. And you're right. Where is the integrity? Where is the, you know, if you're a book publisher for elementary school curriculum, you're teaching, you're, you're publishing curriculum for students, you're just going to bend any way the wind blows. So the next, you know, if DeSantis gets voted out and there's a more sensible governor uh, that understands and appreciates history, you're going to rewrite the whole book, recall all the books with Rosa Parks, you know, not standing up about race, where, where does that lead us? I mean, and you're right, Dr. Uh, you know, Dabinga, if you're not incensed by this, you are asleep at the switch. Because today it's Black folks, it's Black history, as you said, it's already, you know, Jewish history with the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. We know they're going after LGBT. I have a, a niece uh, that's a lesbian. She wrote me a text and said, why are they going after trans? She just couldn't understand. Like, what what have you know? What has trans people done yep. <laughs> to conservatives? She just doesn't get why they are so uh, insist insist by them. And you know, we haven't talked about this shooter in Tennessee. They've kept they've been dropping this line that she's trans. Mm -hmm. We've heard it, but you know, I haven't seen. And maybe. Uh, you have, and I'll ask both of you, have you seen any of the news outlets make a big deal out of it? Uh, but I, I can only imagine that we're going to start to hear more about that. And, and somehow we're already hearing that she had some kind of emotional issues, maybe mental health issues. She was seeing some kind of a doctor or counselor or something. But what do you make, Dr. Dabinga, of this Tennessee congressman who says, we can't do much about this. Can't do anything about it. He says, in fact, if we try to do something about it, we're going to just mess it up as if it's, it's not already messed up. It's I mean, there's, there's there's two fronts to this. You know, when we talk about that, that first aspect of what you're talking about, that statement that he made should be on every campaign uh, flyer, promotion, commercial, uh, along with some of the other ignorant things that many of these politicians have said who have basically had this mentality of, of we can't do anything. And we have to be mindful of the fact that and I've, I've been one of those people who said we can't do much, but we have to pay attention to what's been happening. For example, the NRA is not as, as rich as it used to be. A lot, many Democrats a few years ago were getting A plus ratings from the NRA 
NRA and none of the Democrats are now. And there's been legislation that has been passed in different places. So we have been making progress. And so we can't quit as it relates to that. And we have to be on the offense and get these stories out there because you read the quotation that he said. There have been other Congress people who've made statements. We have to make people never forget. And as it relates to the trans uh, question that you brought up, I'm going to read this from Donald Trump Jr. Given the incredible rise of trans non-binary mass shooters in the last few years, by far the largest group committing as a percentage of population, maybe rather than talking about guns, we should be talking about lunatics pushing their gender affirming BS, you know, he said the full term on our kids. Him, Marjorie Taylor Greene, all of these guys, they're already seizing on this to more deeply target the trans community with complete falsehoods. We know white cisgendered males commit the majority of shootings, but so the, some of these news outlets may not be talking about it as much, but these are more p talking points for these Republicans, and we have to attack them because if, uh, on this, because if they were saying these things about any other group, we'd be outraged. And just like we saw with CPAC a few weeks ago, they want this group to be external. Terminated. I mean, you know, it, I'm, and I'm not even over-exaggerating here. And we have to fight this because the trans community, they're our community. They're human beings just like everybody else. And we can't let them get away with it. Read that again, that false statement, that misstatement of facts, that complete mm -hmm. lie that I'm trans from, people... Uh, Right from the New Republic reported on, it said, given the incredible rise of trans non-binary mass shooters in the last few years, by far the largest group committing as a percentage of population, maybe rather than talking about guns, we should be talking about lunatics pushing their gender affirming BS on our kids. So here's where I want to go with that, Rafe. OK, this news outlet that Donald Trump Jr. says it, as Dr. Dabinga said, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we know the list, but these people are in office because somebody voted for them and they got out of their primary. So we can blame the MAGA folks for them getting out of their primaries. But once they get out the primaries, they're in a general election. So it's not just Republicans voting for them. We got to hold these voters accountable because if we want to see change, we've got to vote that change. Who are these people that are electing just outright liars, outright, you know, fabricators, people who are willing to tell lies to target the trans community. Are you more outraged? I don't know if I'm more outraged by the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world or the voters who voted her in office. What about those people? Why are we like more outraged with them? You know, what's startling about all this is that the majority opinion on this, on every issue, is on the side of everything the two of you have so eloquently said. But it has yet to translate into majority power. And that's partly because of the system where you have the Senate, which favors rural states. You have the filibuster in the Senate. You have gerrymandering in the House. But the real problem is I'm not aware of any elected official who has ever lost their position in government on this issue. Whereas in 1970, a Democrat lost a race, Miller Tidings in Maryland, because of his support for gun control and the entire country's access shifted among politicians that it was too dangerous to support. It has to go to the point where people say, we're going to defeat you. If it takes us 10 years, we're going to, all you have to do is defeat a couple. And the right. echoes That's of right. that are massive. You can't change somebody's mind 
to paraphrase a famous phrase, whose political interest depends on believing whatever it is they're saying, whether they believe it or not. Mm -hmm. But you can change anybody's mind in government if it could cost them their seat. It has not yet cost anybody their seat. That's what has to happen. One person. All it takes is one or two victories on that yeah, issue. It, it, it's, it's, it's easy to get discouraged because when you see yeah. little kids getting shot and killed, Ugh. and if that Horrifying. doesn't move people to want to take action, you think, my God, what is it going to take? And we've seen so many kids. You know, you send your kid to school and a, literally a <coughs> nine-year-old doesn't come home. I mean, it's just devastating. Uh, continue this conversation when we come forward. Uh, after some news, sports, and traffic, our justice correspondent, Dion Ray is here for an inside look, day three of jury deliberation in the federal bribery trial of LA City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. KBLA today. The present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I am back, and KBLA Justice Correspondent Dion Raymond is joining me in this segment. This is our daily legal segment. We have been bringing you comprehensive coverage of the federal bribery trial involving LA City Council Member Mark Ridley Thomas. And we are at the end of day three of jury deliberation. This was a two-week trial uh, where prosecutors allege that there was uh, a long trail of emails and letters that prove that Mark Ridley Thomas and former dean of USC School of Social Work, Marilyn Flynn, had a quid pro quo arrangement in 2017 and 2018 in which the then dean arranged for Mark's son, Sebastian's, admission to USC, a full tuition scholarship, and a paid professorship in exchange for his father's support for county proposals that would ostensibly shore up the school's uh, financial picture. Uh, according to the prosecutors, uh, the dean of the school was facing some financial difficulties and was trying to get money into her school. Now, the defense attorney had a surgical response to the prosecution's case, calling 18 witnesses in two days. Uh, they countered that there was nothing illegal about the uh, conduct and the actions of Mark Ridley Thomas. They focused in on the $100,000 transaction that Mark Ridley Thomas donated uh, to USC that eventually was also donated to a nonprofit that his son was a part of. They said that this uh, donation was legal. They put on an expert who also testified that there was nothing illegal about the contribution. And they also put on a slew of county witnesses to show what the county process is for contracts being approved. They debunked the uh, allegations from the prosecution that this was an $8 million contract at issue uh, and put on evidence in black and white, plain evidence that the contract, one of the contracts in question was actually only for $545,000. And that was over a five-year period. So prosecution has been arguing this is a shut and closed case. There were emails and then there was action. The defense has been arguing there's not a whole lot to see here. Well, clearly, uh, both sides may have it partially right and partially wrong because the jury did not come back in three hours or five hours or one day or two days or even three days. They've been out for three entire days deliberating. 
And from the questions that have been asked, I think we're up to question number seven. There is no indication that this is going to end anytime soon. All right, Dion, you were inside that courthouse today, like you have been every day since this trial began. Tell us about some of the questions that were asked today by the jury and what they signal to you about whether this jury may be getting any closer to making a decision. Well, first of all, Arif, I just want to thank you for that summary. It absolutely nails it, what has happened um, up to this very day. And um, we are on uh, question number six. Uh, the first one was um, trying to um, figure out whether something tangible has to be of value. And after that, and interestingly so, Ariva, um, uh, yesterday, the jury asked for a readback from Ann Ravel, the defense's expert on campaign finance laws. And then after that, they had a question about one of the jury instructions, um, the elements of one of the statutes. So what's really kind of tough about that is that we're talking about things, Ariva, that people like you and I went to law school to understand and to study. <laughs> So this is not an easy job for them. And today they wanted to know if there was a distinction between means and method and unlawful and illegal. And then after that, there was a question uh, after they left or, well, it was uh, put to the, to the lawyers after they left, whether or not a breach of duty in and of itself is lawful. So this is what I think it signals um, to me is that this is in a snapshot, the kind of difficult things that jurors have to wrestle with. This is not an easy case. The facts of the case, all of the evidence, all of the testimony, the argument, and what it signals to us is that they are taking this very seriously. They are digging in and doing the work. And as you know, Ariva, with the nature of juries, we don't know if this means there's one person who's kind of hanging things up one way or the other, or if it's one side against the other, or, you know, Ariva, they sat there very dutifully and very patiently and very attentively listening to all of the evidence and, and all of the argument from beginning to end. And now it's their turn to um, you know, do their duty. And, and just one last point is that um, Daryl and Dury said in her closing argument, at this point, when you take the case, I am putting my client's care into your hands. And it mm. landed so profoundly and impactfully and I think they took that with them into the jury room. And um, I think, or I would like to hope as a lawyer, as a former trial attorney, that that's um, something that they are considering, that this individual's life is, is now with them. Yeah, you know, I think what's so uh, puzzling to a lot of people, Dion, is that they read a lot of the media, they read a lot of the press, and it was very pro-prosecution. Let's be honest. If you look at some of the articles, even dating back to 2018 in the Los Angeles Times, for example, they pretty much said it was a shut and closed case. And that's the argument that the prosecution made during its closing argument. But that's not so clear. And I think the first indication of that to me was when I looked at the nine witnesses that the prosecution called and saw that they didn't call one county of Los Angeles employee. And having had a lot of experience working with the county of Los Angeles, which is probably one of the largest county systems in the nation, 100,000 plus employees, you know, I don't know, $36 billion, some astronomical budget. The fact that you could put on a case about county contracts and not have a county witness and then have an FBI agent says, say on the witness stand that he didn't 
interview, not a single solitary employee of Mark Ridley Thomas's because of this notion that somehow they were loyalists. That signaled to me that this was not the kind of case that you would expect. I, I had a friend say, this is not how she wants her tax dollars to be put to use if this is the kind of investigation that the FBI engages in. So how common is that being a, a criminal trial lawyer yourself to see the government put on a case and to not have interviewed everybody that could have information? Because, you know, the government has an ob obligation to turn over exculpatory evidence. But I guess if you don't find the exculpatory evidence because you don't ask the right people, there's nothing to turn over. So well, that's you know, what's worse ahead, about, is that they had it. They had it. And the defense said in their opening that the that part of the issue in this case is that the government was not going to show them the other side or all of the evidence. They said that in their opening. They showed that in cross-examination. They showed that in their case and they highlighted it in their closing using the government's own timeline that was put together by the FBI agent and just inserting all of the information that they selectively omitted. Areva, given the resources of the government and the and the, the training of an FBI agent, it's a huge failing. It's a huge flaw. And I believe that they owed, they had a, a duty and a responsibility to, to fundamentally do a basically good, sound investigation and it was clear from the moment that they cross-examined Special Agent Atkins that they failed in that regard. Yeah, this isn't about, you know, trophies or wins. This is supposed to be about getting to the truth and instilling confidence in the public, in our law enforcement agencies. And, you know, the FBI is supposed to be the creme de la creme of law enforcement agencies, as is the Justice Department. So I'm not only, you know, looking at those agents that did this shoddy investigation, but also those lawyers, because those lawyers are supposed to be some of the best and the brightest in our legal system. So they know what a good investigation looks like. And I'm sure somebody's boss is, is back at the office uh, and heads are rolling about some of the flaws that were revealed in their case. Well, it is, again, the end of day three in the federal bribery trial of LA City Council member Mark Ridley Thomas, and there is still no verdict. Uh, tomorrow, day four of jury deliberation, Dion Raymond, KBLA's justice correspondent, will be back in that courthouse. And the minute uh, we get news from Dion that there is a verdict that's been reached, presuming that it happens on day four. But, you know, there are no time limits. Juries can stay out as long as they choose to stay out. So we can't guarantee that we're going to have different news tomorrow about the verdict. But we can guarantee you that you will hear it on KBLA first. Uh, thanks, uh, Dion, for always uh, giving us the best and great reporting. And we will see you tomorrow when we come forward. More of today's trending news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time. KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and we are following today's trending news with my expert contributors, Dr. Omikongo Dabinka from American University and Raphael Sunshine, who is a director over at Cal State LA. He's involved in everything, everything public policy. And we were talking earlier about who's going to be in this Republican race to be 
uh, the president of the United States in 2024, who has the best chance of beating Donald Trump. So we got to talk about his former VP, Mike Pence, because today a federal judge said to Mike Pence, dude, you can't just tell your story in a book where you get a big advance and make lots of money on royalties. You've got to show up at a federal grand jury and tell us about this pressure campaign that Donald Trump was putting on you in the days leading up to the January 6th insurrection. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, Dr. Dominga, how can Mike Pence even think that he has a chance of being the president of the United States when he won't cooperate with the United States? I mean, he wants to be the leader of the country, but one arm of the country, the judicial branch or the, you know, the executive branch, I guess the, the Department of Justice is under the executive branch, is saying, dude, we need your testimony. I mean, who does he think is going to vote for him? <laughs> I mean, you know, he doesn't have the Trump base. I mean, look at the way he's turned his back on, on law enforcement and look at the way he's turned his back on any sensible Republicans. I mean, this man, he sold out his staff because so many of them have gone to testify before the January 6th commission. He didn't do that. He's been asked to speak in many different areas and venues and, and, and outright condemn Trump. And, he, and the first time he does it is at, a, is at a private dinner behind closed doors. And really, at the end of the day, he's been a coward all along. And he expects to be praised as some American hero for doing the right thing on January 6th. But he knew what was coming beforehand. He was in all of these conversations. That's why he didn't decide to get in the car. I mean, his own family was in jeopardy that day. People were out there. They weren't chanting, hang anybody else on this panel. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence. <laughs> They came for you. And so this guy has sold out law enforcement. He sold out his staff. He sold out the American people. And Trump's base is not going to support him. So I, he thinks he's some larger than, you know, holier than thou figure that's going to come up here and really make changes in society. He has no chance and no choice but to go and testify now. And I'm looking forward to what he has to say. But quite honestly, just like Nikki Haley, anybody who's out there trying to thread the needle about how great America can be and how we need to move forward and won't go directly after Trump has no business running for office. Yeah, it just is really offensive. Right? Now, let me be clear. This judge in a ruling that remains unsealed said that he can still decline. That's Mike Pence can decline to answer questions related to his actions on January 6th itself when he was serving as president of the Senate for the certification of the 2020 presidential election. But we know what the special counsel, Jack Smith, is really interested in is what those conversations were like leading up to January 6th, where Trump was telling him he had all this power that he didn't have, that he could you know, single-handedly decide who was going to be the president of the United States. What do you make of him you know, uh, saying, first of all, he said the vice president should not have to testify against the president. You know, he says that's un, I don't know, vice presidential or something, <laughs> some theory about it uh, that obviously this federal judge has rejected. But do you feel like Dr. Dabinga that he has no business even running for president? You know, what is these called? Profiles and almost having courage. I think that would be a <laughs> wonderful book, which is I think he's trying to be clever by having them force him to testify against his will, fight like crazy and say, oh, my God, I have no choice. I've got to throw Donald Trump under the bus. Hope Donald Trump gets indicted, hopes he goes to jail and loses <laughs> all of his friends. Now, 
The oh, wait, but that's your, your theory that this is all very strategically yeah, being planned. Yeah, but bad strategy. It's it's like a terrible strategy. It's why Pence was such a flop in Indiana. The Republicans couldn't were so happy he was on the ticket because it got him out of Indiana. <laughs> and the really the only way to do this is to be Chris Christie, but not be Chris Christie. Can I tell you a story? You know, I love sure. stories. Nineteen sixty-eight, Hubert Humphrey was considered the kind of weasel vice president of Lyndon Johnson, terrified of LBJ on Vietnam, wouldn't go against him. About a week before the election, he called for a halt in the bombing and his polling skyrocket. He almost won the he almost won that election because he dug deep inside and said, The only way out of this is to go forward with everything I've got and break mm. with the president. And it was it wasn't brilliant. It was like done with heart. You got to do that. Pence doesn't have that in him. He wants to be kind of forced to back in to throw the president over and hope nobody notices that he did it. And with Trump it doesn't work. As everybody knows, the only way to beat Trump is to risk your political life, go right at him and just go right at him with everything you've got. And that's the only way you'll ever get the kind of respect in the Republican Party. I know it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's the well, Republican Party. It's not not kind of a normal place right now. But if somebody but did are, that, who knows what would happen? Let me ask you this. There are <laughs> some polls suggest that Trump only has a hold on about 30 to 35 percent of the Republican Party. So if you believe that poll, that means there's a whole lot of party out there that's not supporting Donald Trump. Do you think those numbers are wrong? Do you think the support in the Republican Party is much higher than that 30 to 35 percent? I just think people compare the two parties as if they're similar. His 30 percent beats everybody else's share of 70 percent because they only are for Donald Trump, not even for the Republican Party. And the other parts of the party are going to go along. Because they're the ones who drive the party. And at the end of the day, I still think unless somebody just flat out challenges him directly, he's easily, he just coasts to the, his 30%, by the way, in the Republican primary system, 30% was more than enough for him to win in 2016 in a runaway. But it's a runaway when nobody takes you on. And taking on Marco Rubio, by the way, which um, I think you and I could take on Marco Rubio, <laughs> and we wouldn't even have to prepare very much. Um, I mean, he'll fold like a house of cards. Donald Trump doesn't fold, but he also is not unbeatable. That's, and that's what's why, so you know, remarkable about this, Dr. Domingo. Here are these guys. Oh, my God. They're so tough. They talk <laughs> so much. I mean, look at... Uh, Cruz. Good example, yeah. right? Oh, my, oh my God. Goodness. He oh. gave uh, Katanji Brown Jackson the <laughs> worst time ever. Mm -hmm. And I think he was probably still smarting, you know, when remembering when they were law students uh, at Harvard together, she probably was kicking his butt in some classes <laughs> or something. He was getting revenge yeah. on her, right? Yep, Here yep. he is, a U.S. senator. So, I mean, he was a bully. Let's just call it what it was. He was a bully. But yet they, sh Donald Trump talks about their daddies, their mamas, their wives. I mean, he just goes all in. He gets so personal mm -hmm. and yet they shrink, they melt, they cower. They, they just, I've never seen grown men so afraid <laughs> of another grown man. I mean, it's just remarkable. Yeah. The yeah. kind of power he has over them.
Absolutely. And because they all want control of that base. I mean, you can even see what's going on with Fox, where people like Tucker Carlson and the techs talk about how much they hate Trump. But Hannity had him on just the other night. It's that base that they want. And if the Republicans were strategic, they would change their primary results so, or competition contest to something where people have to get like 50 percent of the vote or not just the largest. And that would easily take care of Trump in in one way, shape or form, because as long as he has that base that's going to ride of him until the end, he can keep doing this. And even with many of these indictments, as long as the federal indictments don't come, it doesn't matter how many indictments can come from the different states. He can still run. And that's why they are scared of him, because he is dangerous at every level. And he has shown that his followers, they will come for you physically, you know, violently, or they will come for you by not supporting you if you don't kiss the ring. And so the way he's taken over the party, it's really extremely strategic. And but we've seen this before. I mean, Hitler won with a third of the vote. So people didn't take him seriously at first. And so if we learn from history, we can learn a lot of ways on how to defeat Trump right now. That's such a good point because, you know, that's what the Dems have done, right? We are Mm -hmm. changing our primary system to make it easier for people of color, for women to get a, a leg up in the primary. We're saying bye, Iowa. Bye. Yep, we're saying right. bye, New Hampshire. We're saying we're going to states where there are more minority voters, where there are greater opportunities for minority candidates, uncondition, un, you know, non-traditional candidates to have success early on. Mm-hmm. The Republicans need to take a page out of the Democratic Party's playbook and figure out, as you said, how to take control reclaim control of their party because they are going to lose again in 2024. I, I predict they're going to lose the House. Uh, I think we're going to hold on to the Senate. I think they're going to lose the White House again. Uh, and now maybe some of them watching this show are going to say, wow, that, that professor from American University had a good point there. Let's, let's go figure out what the let's go figure out what the Democrats did to uh, make it easier for certain kinds of candidates to get through their primaries. But you're right. But you know, the primary, the Republican Party leader right now is, what is she, uh, the niece of mm-hmm. Mitt Romney, but a sycophant to Donald Trump. So they'd have to get rid of her, too. <laughs> so they got some yeah. pieces on the chessboard to move around before they can really uh, do much with the Republican Party. But thanks that's to right. both of you. Great insights, Dr. DeVille. <laughs> Always good to see you. Tell us about this book that's coming out. Where can we find it and when? Yes, lies about black people, how to combat racist stereotypes and why it matters. The pre-order is out everywhere. For is written by Michael Eric Dyson. It's been endorsed by great individuals like the incomparable Eriva Martin. Thank you so much. <laughs> and this is a book for anyone who wants to get out there and do this work and be anti-racist and be upstanders and not bystanders. Wherever books are sold, it's out in July. You can order it today. Fantastic. Well, of course, we'll have to have you back. We'll have you back lots before July, but definitely can't wait to get my hands on it uh, and want to have you back to talk about it. Always a pleasure. Ralph Sonnenshine doing great work over at Cal State LA. Always a pleasure, my friend, to see you. Thank you. I do believe this was the dream team. Thanks, guys. <laughs> right. No doubt. Good to see you again. All right. After some new sports and traffic, we are going all in on the Jesse Smollett case and this breaking story by an investigative journalist and podcast host. Hosts, they say they got the receipts on what really happened on that cold night in Chicago. Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.
Blinds, shades, and shutters at low prices, custom made for your windows, and shipping is free. Shop at home and order 10 free samples of any product before you buy. Blindster.com. Is this, this is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. Ray Richardson. Magic Johnson is getting closer to becoming a part owner of an NFL franchise. Magic and billionaire Josh Harris submitted a fully financed bid to buy the Washington Commanders. Current owner Dan Snyder is selling the team for a reported $6 billion. If the bid is accepted, it will be the highest purchase price for an NFL franchise in league history. Rob Walton, who started Walmart, paid $4.65 billion last year for the Denver Broncos. Magic and Harris will know if their bid is accepted at the next NFL owners meeting in May. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. Aaron from Original Taco Pete's here, inviting you to our newest location at 3272 West Slauson off Crenshaw for Taco Tuesday, only $175. Call 323-348-4441 to order. It's getting hot in here. KBLA Talk 1580 is apparently the talk of the town. From the L.A. Times to our talk radio competitors. Hey, uh, there was a story in the L.A. Times about Tavis Smiley. Now he is back with his own radio station, KBLA. uh, Black-owned and oriented towards the black audience. So, Mo, considering your knowledge of Tavis uh, and his audience, uh, what's your take on this? Well, I think in a general industry sense, uh, I think it's always good when there are more outlets, there are more talk radio, there's more voices and representation at that point. I think talk radio had been too homogenous for too long. Real quickly, is it going to succeed, yes or no? I think it's going to succeed. You think? There's a new sheriff in town. We're KBLA Talk 1580, and we don't black down. A shooter armed with two AR-style weapons and a handgun killed three students and three adults at a private Christian school in Nashville yesterday. The latest deadly rampage in a nation anguished by the regularity of mass killings, but deeply divided over how to stop them. The top Federal Reserve official investigating Silicon Valley Bank faced two hours of intense questions from lawmakers today. Regulators told senators that a, quote, textbook case of mismanagement, quote, led to the bank's failure and that SVB allowed risk to build up to the point that the bank collapsed. A fire broke out at a migrant detention facility just south of the U.S. border, killing at least 39 people in one of the deadliest tragedies in years involving foreigners crossing Mexico to reach the United States. The parent of a second grader at North Shore Elementary in St. Petersburg, Florida, filed a formal objection against the film of Ruby Bridges and the story of how she became a civil rights icon by wading through a white mob to integrate an elementary school in the South in 1960. The parent filed the objection after the movie was played in her child's class as a part of a Black History Month lesson. In the complaint, the parent said the film isn't appropriate for second graders because it might teach them that, quote, white people hate Black people, quote. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie sharply criticized Donald Trump on Monday during his first trip this year to New Hampshire as he kept the door open to entering the GOP presidential primary against his former ally and signal he would decide by June. Mike Pence must testify to the January 6th grand jury, according to a court ruling today, 
This is the latest setback to Pence's team's efforts to limit his testimony to any agency investigating the January 6th insurrection. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is my second hour, so I'm taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. Also, if you're watching the KBLA YouTube channel, you're watching the show on YouTube, drop us a comment or a question. We will read it online. In this hour, I'm joined by investigative journalist, and journalist and author, a journalist and author who say disgrace empire actor and singer Jesse Smollett's case has more to it than perhaps we previously knew about. Jared Hill, journalist and author, and Shelley Stanley, investigative journalists, have done a deep dive on the story that emerged regarding Jesse Smollett claiming that he was a victim of a hate crime. Now, Jesse was sentenced to 150 days in jail in order to pay a fine of $145,000 for lying to the Chicago police about being the victim of what he called a hate crime. Now, he was found guilty of five charges of disorderly conduct at a trial in December of 2021 and later sentenced in March of 2022. At his sentencing hearing, not only did Jesse Smollett shout out that he was not suicidal, he also shouted out, I did not do this. My guests in this hour say the individuals who were initially investigated as persons of interest, Ola and Abel Asandero, these are two brothers from Nigeria that were somehow involved in the incident involving Jesse Smollett. My guests today say their story is suspect and that they have the receipts to prove it. Now, this case has spawned widespread interest. In fact, Fox Nation just announced that it's doing a docuseries entitled Jesse Smollett, Anatomy of a Hoax. Now, this series will feature exclusive interviews, and this is according to a press release by Fox Nation. They say they're going to have exclusive interviews with those linked to the controversy, including the brothers Abel and Ola. They say they're going to also have interviews with Chicago police officers and others, uh, and that this docu-series is going to reveal the Osario's brothers' story. The real story, they say we're going to get from Abel and Ola for the very first time. Uh, and again, this is according to a Fox Nation press release. When we come forward, we're going to talk to Jared and Shelley and see why they say the story of these two brothers cannot be believed. And we're going to look at some of those receipts that they have. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Heart failure, carpal tunnel syndrome, shortness of breath, stomach issues, lower back pain. How does it all add up? 
If you have heart failure and any of those seemingly unrelated symptoms sound familiar, it's time to talk with your cardiologist and get the full picture. They may add up to transthyretin amyloid cardiomyopathy. ATTRCM is a rare and underdiagnosed disease. Recognize the signs and discuss them with your doctor soon. Learn more at connectwithyourheart.com. That's connectwithyourheart.com. Sponsored by Pfizer. King C. Gillette is the modern man's answer to their facial hair. A complete set of precision tools and quality care products fit for your beard style. There's the King C. Gillette Beard Thickener that strengthens the facial hair you already have while increasing the volume of each strand for a noticeably thicker look. And with daily use, it maintains thickness with a lightweight fragrance with the King C. Gillette Signature Scent. Master your style with King C. Gillette. Whether you own a local business or a global one, you're always looking for ways to position your operation to create opportunities and move on them faster. With Bank of America, you get access to experts, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter, locally and globally. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Copyright 2023, Bank of America, NA. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back, and this is the second hour of Aretha Martin in real time. And in my second hour, we go deep on stories that people are talking about. And if you remember, the story of Jesse Smollett captured the nation for months, if not years, and now... Uh, Fox Nation is out this month in March with a docuseries that they call The Anatomy of a Hoax. And according to this docuseries, I haven't seen it yet, but I did read the press release. They are going to uh, give us uh, never seen before exclusive interviews with some of the key players involved uh, in that claim where Jesse Smollett said he was the, the subject of a hate crime. And according to Fox Nation, uh, Jesse Smollett made this up, that this was, that's why the title of the docuseries is Anatomy of a Hoax. Uh, they believe this was and forever will be a great big lie that Jesse Smollett told to the world so that he could somehow uh, up his, his cred, his street cred, maybe get more uh, money from the producers of Empire, he was a rising star on that hit series, that Fox hit series at the time. And so there was speculation that he made the story up so that he could be a more sympathetic figure and that he could uh, gain leverage in negotiating his uh, pay. Jesse Smollett maintained throughout the entire ordeal that he was telling the truth, that he was attacked on the streets of Chicago, this very cold night uh, in January in Chicago. And uh, he maintained his innocence even after he was found guilty, even at his sentencing hearing. Uh, journalist and author Jared Hill is here and investigative journalist Shelley Stanley. They got together and did their own investigation of what happened to Jesse Smollett and particularly the stories of Olga and Abel Osendero. And they are here to share with us what they found uh, as a part of their investigation. So welcome Jared Hill, always a pleasure to see you, my friend. You're always in uncovering something like that Melania Trump <laughs> plagiarized Michelle Obama's <laughs> speech. So I know you got some serious investigative chops and you are joined by investigative journalist Shelly Stanley. So welcome and thanks to both of you. So I just want to jump right into this. Uh, 
Jared, how did you get interested in this story? Tell us what brought you to the story. Sure thing. So I, uh, my second day on the radio, on the station that I used to work on, uh, Channel Q, was covering this story as it was happening. Um, the Jesse Smollett case broke and I was on the air for hours talking about it with experts. And you know how breaking news is. You got to get on and speak with a, a lawyer who's available or a, a police officer who is available or a person with some perspective on Jesse that's available or whomever. Um, and I have spent so much time over the years now talking about this story. And it's always been a story that had some precarious things about it, some pieces that didn't really fit or make sense and that you had questions about and things like that. Um, last year, there was a podcast that came out that kind of dug into the case a little bit more closely. And one of the experts on that podcast was this investigative journalist who's brilliant and talented. And her name is Shelly Stanley. And we happen to have her here with us today. Uh, Shelly had dug into so much of the evidence in this case and had FOIA, you know, Freedom of Information Act um, is the Freedom of Information Act is how a lot of journalists are able to get evidence out of police departments and out of city officials and, and different government agencies. And Shelly had gone through and FOIA'd so much information and had really gotten on the police's nerves. Let's just call it what it was. Right. And had had, had really gone really hard on this case. And so I reached out to Shelly and I said, Shelly, I'm... I've been feeling a way about this case. Now I've seen the things that you've presented in this podcast and I started kind of digging into it a little bit more and wanting to figure out how we get to tell this story. And so I ended up connecting with Shelly and um, there's a team of three of us uh, also with Abigail Carr, who's a, an investigative journalist um, at ITN in, in Britain. And we've been working on this and I want to be really clear, Shelly and Abigail are real investigative journalists. Um, I am someone who's good with a Google Right. I know how to do a little bit of research because I, I, I have some chops, but I'm not an investigator in the way that they are. But they have really been um, fantastic in helping me to get an understanding of this case, but also to to being able to help me understand um, the, the context uh, of the case as well. All right, Shelly, uh, big compliment from Jared Hill. Uh, Jared <laughs> says you are the one with the serious investigative chops. So I'll ask you the same question. What got you interested in this story and, and why do this deep dive that ends up, you know, turning into a podcast? Right. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I didn't know who Jesse was when this all started. I um, had never heard of him and I was just sort of seeing the media like so much attention being given to him. It seemed a bit strange in the first place. And then once it's, you know, CPD came out with their version of what happened, just watching the entire country switch so quickly was very alarming to me. It, it just, I just was, you know, shocked that people were believing the Chicago Police Department like that. And there were just a lot of red flags right away from the CPD's narrative, because basically it's a story where Jesse reported a crime to them. They said he's lying to them. And then they seemed to go on this vendetta against him and were doing like unprecedented things like having press conferences, going on press tours, you know, calling him guilty far before the trial even happened. Um, so I started looking into the detectives on the case like very early on and found that there it's not like a single bad apple. It's like a barrel of bad apples, like <laughs> the worst of the worst kind of Chicago detectives on this case. And then, you know, as time went on, I just started looking into the investigation more and more. And there were just so many issues 
with well, it. Well, let's stop right there, Shelly. Let's talk about some of those detectives. How many were involved and how many did you investigate? Yeah. So, I mean, I was looking at the police report. So every detective listed, I, I wrote them down. I looked, I ran them through two uh, databases, community databases in Chicago that show uh, misconduct allegations and misconduct lawsuits. And so there's 38 detectives and supervisors. And wait, they wait, had, wait, 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 wait. So 38 detectives were involved in this well, case? well, Areva, yes. what's important yes. to remember about this is like they brought Jesse up on all of these charges saying that every time he told the story of what happened, that that was a new lie. If he told it to a new police officer, that was a new situation. They've tried to make this so that there are, is this enormous bill that he has to pay because the police were, I don't know, doing their job. Right. And so like there were all of these people on this case case that when you see when you hear Shelly say that many detectives that's how the police were able to kind of build this case or the prosecutors were able to kind of build this case that Jesse owed the city and the police uh in the way that they they said he did exactly. I just don't see any I can't even imagine how you end up with 38 detectives right. in a city like Chicago that has so much violent crime being committed on the regular where you got 38 police officers involved. But okay, Shelly, so you find 38 on this report and you ran all of them through several databases, yeah, found uh, that all or many had. Uh, yeah, police. a lot of them did. So basically of those 38, there were 563 combined misconduct allegations against them. And these are like formally filed. So people had to go to the police station and formally file and say, this is my name. This is what the officer did to me. Like that's rare in itself, you know, but, um, and they also had 16 lawsuits that the city paid out against those detectives, totaling almost 7 million. Um, one of the detectives was involved in the Laquan McDonald case, which was uh, just before Jesse's case where a 16 year old child was shot uh, it was a 17 year old child shot 16 times in the city and there was a huge cover up. And then, um, you know, eventually the, the officer was found guilty. Um, and the the officer on Jesse's case, his name is Richard Hagan. He was also involved in the Laquan McDonald case and sued in the Laquan McDonald case. And there was a payout of five million dollars for that. And Richard Hagan was involved in some of the most, uh, you know, I guess, what do we want to call it? well-known evidence mm -hmm. that CPD brought out against Jesse. It was Richard Hagen who found that evidence, which is- Well, well let me ask you this, uh, Jared. I, I hear what Shelly is saying. So you got some cops in Chicago with some bad reports on them. They got lawsuits. They got uh, complaints from citizens. What would be their motivation in this case? I, I, I hear what Shelly said about their prior- I think what would be their motivation to lie in this case? So I think the, the thing that we kind of miss with the Jesse Smollett story is the interesting intersection of time that it happens within. So we talk about this Laquan McDonald case where they came out and they said that he was charging at us. We were in fear for our lives. So we had to shoot at him. And, you know, I believe it was about a year later when we actually got the video where we saw that he was leaving, uh, going away from them. He was shot 16 times in his back and on the ground and all those things. This case comes to a close when the police officer who shot him is uh, is is found guilty and then sentenced. 
But then the following day after that sentencing, the sentencing was only six years, right? And people were furious about the fact that this was a six-year sentence, that the police, ha we had seen the police trying to cover up this case. We had seen all kinds of crazy evidence come out about the way that the CPD had behaved. And then the sentencing happens. We get this six-year sentencing. The next day after that, the four officers who were also involved in this case are then acquitted right after we've seen all of the evidence uh, about this case in the, in the CPD, 11 days later, this case happens with Jesse Smollett, right? So the whole narrative about the Chicago Police Department was already that they were corrupt, that they were uh, abusive, that they were over that they were overreaching that they were they were doing all kinds of different things that we could see in the public that was a part of the narrative of the Chicago Police Department so then Shelley says you know I was surprised that people were believing the CPD so quickly it's that context that's really important that when we start seeing things coming out from the Chicago Police Department that all of a sudden we immediately buy the narrative that they've given us we immediately say oh well that must be what happened because that boy was lying right and or this story don't make no sense to me and they're telling me that we We've got this, that, and the other. But as we will show you um, coming up, we've got the evidence that they said they never had. We've got evidence that they continue to say that they didn't have anything, that they didn't have any witnesses. There are three witnesses in this case, one that, that saw the person before, a person that was on the phone with Jesse, and a security guard who saw them running away. We've got surveillance video to be able to show what these people were doing when they were walking down the street. And you can even see their a bit of their face, right? We've seen the Osendero brothers are these dark-skinned Nigerian men the person that we can show you in this video is not that, right? We also know that the prosecutor in this case, Dan Webb, is the same prosecutor who's in court right now defending Fox News in the Dominion case, where we can see the ways that they knew that they were lying, the ways that they continued to lie, and put things out into the world to shape a narrative in the way that they wanted to. And all of that is in the context of the Chicago Police Department, who has written this narrative, and all of the things that people tend to know about this story out in the world have been written by the Chicago Police Department. Did, did, do you know, Shelly, if Jesse's defense team in his trial had the same information that you have? Did they have access to these three witnesses? Did they have access to the surveillance video? Did they have access to the evidence that you have? Um, they did not use that evidence. They did. One of the witnesses they had come um, forward, Anthony Moore, who we can show you on video. He's a he was a guard at the Sheraton Hotel who uh, the people ran by after. And he CPD went and interviewed him because they saw him on film. So they saw him on film two days after they interviewed him the third day. And he told them that the guy that ran by him was six feet tall, masked and and white. And you could see that he was white, you know, around uh, the eye holes. And that's literally the exact same description that Jesse gave to the police, the exact same six feet tall thin, mass, so, and white. So Anthony Moore did testify at the trial on behalf he of, did. of Jesse? He did. And, and it was really interesting because what happened was he went into court and he he told the, the, the court that he had been pressured and threatened by the special prosecutor's office for hours to change his story and say that the person was black and not white. And Anthony Moore is a black man who was never taken seriously by the CPD they um, took him to a lineup of black men after he told them that the guy was white. And they obviously then later, you know, through the pro special prosecutor's office, threatened and pressured him to try to change his story. So he actually went in court and pointed to the person, the prosecutor who had pressured and threatened him in open court 
Um, none of this made the news, of course, like nobody has heard of this, but it's an amazing story. And he's he was an amazingly brave person to do that, you know. And did the jurors just ignore Anthony when Anthony testified at the trial that, look, I said it was white, a white guy and the prosecutors pressured me to change my story to say it was a black guy? You know, how did that get handled on a cross-examination by the prosecution? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the prosecution, actually, the guy who threatened and pressured Anthony Moore then cross-examined him right after, which was pretty shocking. Um, and, you know, he pre pretty much just said, Anthony Moore, I'm sure your eyes were playing tricks on you and you just couldn't tell what you could tell, even though he's a trained security guard and that's what he does. Um, and then what I think happened was was that Jesse got on the stand right after that. And that's why the media immediately turned. I think the jury, it seemed like everyone just forgot that that had just happened, basically. And it wasn't the, you know, the defense team didn't keep bringing it up and pointing it out to the juror. So that that was an error on there. What about what about the surveillance video? Was that used at the trial by the defense? And does that surveillance video show white guys versus black guys? Yes, it, it does show that. And it was not used by the defense in the trial. Okay. What's, what's interesting about the surveillance video, you talked about Fox Nation having a documentary series out. And I can tell you that, like, working on this case for a number of months and, like, being in communication with Shelly and, and the team that we've developed, it's been interesting to kind of see it juxtaposed to what's being offered out in the world. Because the video that we'll show you in just a little bit, they use the same video in the Fox Nation documentary, right? But they cut it before you can see who the people are. Right. When you asked me earlier about what the motive is, why would the Chicago Police Department do this? And I, I kind of laid out for you the time that they were in. Dan Webb, who was the prosecutor, talks about the bruised image of the Chicago Police Department and his his, quote, enormous loyalty, end quote, to the Chicago Police Department, the city of Chicago and the people who run it and wanting to restore that that reputation. And immediately after this happened, you'll remember that Jesse said that they the the people that attacked him um, said this is MAGA country as they attacked him and poured liquids on him and put a noose around his neck and those kinds of things. Immediately after this happened in the days in the first days following it on Chicago Police Department blog on the, the police officer blogs, they're talking about this as if he's made Making it up from the jump. They are discrediting him as a human being. They are posting images of Loch Ness monsters and things like that to be able to, to say that they think he is lying, that they don't believe him, that no, no, you know, Trumpy person would come and do this. Um, and so that you can see that there's a political motivation around it as well to be able to kind of turn the conversation away from this MAGA piece. You have the president of the United States in 2019, Donald Trump, talking about this case, right? And so there's a vested interest in being able to move this kind of narrative in a certain kind of way. And you even hear the reporters from Chicago saying that they were, quote, shocked by the ways that they saw the police um, leaking information out into the public and the way that that information leaking out into the public had a, a significant impact on the narrative around the story, right? They know what they're doing. They use the same clips of evidence. They use the right. same pieces of information, but they position them in such a way to be able to make the Chicago Police Department look like heroes. But if you play the full video, you can see that they're lying. If you look at the evidence, you can see that they've tampered with it. You can see that they've inserted things that were never a part of anybody else's testimony about what they saw or what they told the police. It's, it's a really explosive kind of thing that's opening up with this case. Hold hold that thought. When we come forward, we're going to talk about those Osat 
Osandero brothers, their role in this. We definitely are going to show some of that video footage. Going to continue this discussion about Jesse Smollett right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We're back and I'm talking with journalist and Arthur Jared Hill and investigative journalist Shelby Stanley. And they have done this deep dive on the Jesse Smollett case. We were talking before the break about some video footage that you have. Let's play a little of that video footage and kind of walk us through yeah. what we're seeing, Shelly. So um, I'll take this first one, the, the Anthony Moore video. We told you that there's a, a witness who, who saw the the assailants running by him. He's a he's a security guard at the Sheraton Hotel that was in close proximity there. Not this video, this video. There we go. Um, this this one here, you'll see um, Anthony is a security guard. He's making his rounds through this part of the hotel. And you see him approaching the doors there at the end. He's going outside. The video is actually going to stop there and you'll see that uh, there's a there's 10 seconds of this video that are missing, which also is a precarious piece of information for this video, right? Anthony told police that he shined the light in the face of the assailant as they ran by um, and was able to see his face. And that's where he could see that the person was a white man or a pale-skinned person. Um, he, he said a white man that was six feet tall. That piece of this video is gone. Right. You'll note that if you look at the timestamp on there, that he, he steps outside the door and the, the clock jumps 10 seconds that you can see people running by that piece of him being able to shine the light in the face of the of the person running by him is missing. We don't we can't say that that piece of video was taken out or edited out, but it certainly did not have it did not uh, make it into um, the FOIA request that came from uh, the illustrious Shelley Stanley. Shelly, I I know you have feelings about. I, I mean, about I think we can say it was edited out. out because we can say it was edited out because in their initial police report, they described him as the guard with the flashlight, and they said he was startled, you know. And we don't see any of that in this footage. We just see suddenly that he there's no flashlight, and they've already run by him. So um, I, you know, I I so, asked them for that part, and they just said we don't have it. But they're, they're known so, for with evidence. Yeah, let's talk about the, the Osandaro brothers. So we have these two brothers, Ola and Abel. They they get interjected into this story. We're told uh, at the time that they were extras on the, the uh, drama show Empire, where Jesse Smollett was working at the time, and that they were basically going to the gym with him, that they were trainers of some sorts. And the story gets told that they were hired by Jesse Smollett to stage this attack and they had cased the place that he had given them money. And now this whole story, as Shelly said, goes from people feeling really sorry for Jesse, you know, empathizing with him from, oh my God, this is all made up. And here are the two guys who are, you know, a part of this conspiracy, a part of this. And now, you know, public sentiment, changes flips overnight and jesse becomes a villain uh not a victim so tell us shelly how they play into this entire situation yeah so basically they were arrested you know by cpd um even though cpd has all this evidence including witnesses that the guys were white 
So they were arrested by CPD and held in prison. They were threatened with charges themselves. Um, and it, the police superintendent, Eddie Johnson, himself said that it was only in the last hour before they would either be charged or released that they suddenly switched their story. And what was their original story that they had nothing to do with it? They said they were adamant. They had nothing to do with it. They have no idea why they were arrested. They send their best to Jesse. They were sending out these kind of messages. Then in the last hour, suddenly their stories completely changed. Um, Anthony Guglielmi actually admitted in the um, CNN documentary that came out that he told them Jesse had ID'd them and that he was going to then file federal hate crime charges against them. And that's when they decided to negotiate a deal. That's what Anthony Guglielmi, the former uh, PR head of the CPD, admitted suddenly in a CNN documentary years later. So he admits he threatened and lied to them. He said that. Well, but wait a minute. Why was the head? Hold on a second. Why was mm -hmm. the head of the PR department at a police station involved in the interrogation? It's a good, a great suspects. question. I have no <laughs> idea. But he actually, I have a, a photo I can send you. He actually takes credit for um, getting them to confess on his About Me page. I took a screenshot. He said he was the strategic architect of a communications plan that got the co-conspirators to um, confess. But actually what he did was lie to them. And he, you know, they just were basically playing both sides, trying to get someone to flip on the other so that they could go forward with a story that's not a hate crime. It's a bunch of Met black men who just were doing something stupid and that's the story they wanted to tell they didn't want to tell a story about a hate crime in chicago with the white man involved you know even though that's the evidence that they had but jeremy says how that story so you're sitting in an interrogation room a tiny little room the light shining on you we've all seen it on you know our favorite crime procedural show uh, police are in your face they're threatening you they're loud they're aggressive you know what we can kind of you know vision what that looks like how they come up with this story? I mean, you know, there, there are lots of stories they could have come up with, but do you know why this story? This story is an interesting one to me because it 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 it, it is clearly crafted out of this uh, this deal that they make with these brothers, right? This the brothers are are one of them is a convicted felon. Um, they talk about how the two of them in the apartment that they live in together had drugs, had guns, had all kinds of different things, and so they are. They are in prime position to be coerced into being uh, to being a part of a story where they're able to get a deal, to be able to not have a problem with the things that were found of them. Right? They are also nowadays, if we look, if we bring it to the present day, the fact that they're still telling this story, they have a a podcast that Lionsgate has done with them to be able to tell this story. They're they're. Uh, lawyer is a producer on the documentary that they're a part of, which is, you know, unethical in a lot of different kinds of ways. They are they are committed to this story now because it is helping them to have fame and notoriety again, right? So in the beginning, it's about being able to to kind of get yourself off and get a deal. And in the present day, it's being able to continue to tell this story, to make money off of it, to grow their social media followings, to see how they can be able to turn some fame into this. And as you watch the documentary series and you see people, the people talking about it on social media, they're like, oh, I love these brothers. They're so great. They just well, got I mean, mixed this up is in a this documentary. You're saying... 
Wait, hold on. This is a documentary you're saying the brothers did. They have their own doc, not just the, not the Fox well, Nation the, one. Well, the Fox Nation. No, no, no. The Fox Nation documentary. Okay. The Fox Nation has a documentary with them in it, but they also have a podcast that they've released on their own that Lionsgate has okay. has done with them as well. And so they they are getting multiple wins out of being able to continue to, to live with this story and tell this story the way that they're telling it. The only problem is they're lying. Right. And the thing is, you know, CPD in their own reports said that they told the brothers the story and then the brothers confirmed it. So it wasn't made up by the brothers. It was made up by CPD. And, you know, the other thing with CPD is that's the false confession capital of the country. So they're very skilled at this kind of interrogation and pressure and, you know, getting the story that they want out of somebody. Were these brothers subpoenaed to testify either for the prosecution or the defense at Jesse's trial? They were. They were the, the prosecution and the police's star witnesses and only witnesses. The only witnesses for the police were police officers and these two brothers. So these brothers were the case makers for them because they got them to, to tell their story. And what was their cross-examination like by the attorneys representing Jesse? Were they able to you know, poke holes in their story, twist, you know, get them, uh, you know, to make material misstatements? Were they able to point out inconsistencies? You know, did they do any damage uh, to them on cross-examination? You know, it was interesting because the brothers on cross-examination, they said, I don't recall over and over again. So most questions that they were asked, they just said, I don't recall. I don't recall. I don't recall. It was pretty mm -hmm. interesting. But on the on their testimony side, they were just going on and on very detailed, you know, all these detailed statements about time and place and everything. But when questioned on the other side, they just said they didn't know. Yeah, when we come forward, I want to talk about this anatomy of a hoax, because apparently, as you said, both of you have said, the, the story that was told is continuing to be told, not only by the brothers, but obviously by you know media outlets. And I want to ask what you to hope to accomplish by telling this counter narrative. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and I'm talking with journalist and author Jared Hill and investigative journalist Shelly Stanley. And they say they have the receipts to show that Jesse Smollett is innocent, that he did not create a hoax. He didn't make up the story that he was the subject of a racial attack on the streets of Chicago uh, that, you know, landed him actually being prosecuted, convicted and some really you know small amount of jail time. I know there's some other video that you've been able to obtain, Shelly. Let's play a small piece of it and, again, see what that evidence is that apparently was overlooked by the police and not apparently used very effectively in the trial of Jesse Smollett. Right. So um, this footage is actually, we're going to be able to zoom in and, and look at, at everything. Um, if you want to just jump ahead a little bit on there. Tell um, us so what basically, we're looking at. So basically, this is after the attack. They've run from the scene at this point. They're running to a taxi. So if you look here, they suddenly come on screen. This first guy, you can see his race. And the second guy, uh, short, you know, skinnier. Um, and then the guy in a car is following them, um, who's also white. So the first guy, if you want to just go back a little bit, um, 
you'll, you know, there. just take a, a look at him. Is that Ola Osendario? It doesn't look like it. He's a very light skinned big guy, which is what Jesse described a big guy. And then also a skinnier guy who had a black face mask and was white. Um, which both Jesse and the guard said. So we have a white guy in the front, a second guy is white, according to two witnesses, and then a guy in a car following them who's white. Um, so so there's all this evidence. What's happened since you, Shelly, and you, Jared, and you said there's another partner involved in this project? This information now is out there. We got this uh, anatomy of a hoax, this Jesse Smollett anatomy of a hoax that was you know, created by Fox Nation that's on their streaming site. What's the response been to this evidence that you all are presenting, Jared? To be honest with you, there hasn't really been any, right? Like the Shelley has been has published some of this stuff out in in the public domain years ago, right? Dating back to 2019, 2020. Um, and there's been nothing, to be quite honest with you. And it's a little bit frustrating from the standpoint of like wanting to like tell a story and and to be able to help shape public narrative, but like people don't really seem to care. Right. And it's important to me because we have so many. If you type in Jesse Smollett's name into Twitter on any given day, Jesse Smollett is a punchline. Right. To Jesse mm. Smollett, something is to fake something. Right. Mm -hmm. His this has cost him his career. This has cost his family things. This has cost people around him so much. And it is so clear that this is a lie, right? We talked earlier about like this this video that Shelly just just showed you. This same video is in the Fox Nation video, is, is, in, is in their documentary series. But in those pieces where you can see the top of the person's head and see that they are not a dark-skinned person and see that they have a receding hairline and neither one of them looks like the Osendero brothers, yeah, they cut it before that, right? And I that's a moment where I was like, oh, I see this moment just happen right in front of me and it it makes me buzz. Like it, it gives me goosebumps because I'm like, oh, I can see it with my own eyes the way that they are telling this story. They had the Osendero brothers on Sean Hannity with a live uh, audience there and their, their performance was not good. Um, but it was interesting to watch them try to cater to this audience. In the very first words that come out of their mouths, they are apologizing for offending conservative people mm. and talking about the ways that they really harmed, that they harmed the community. Later on in the in the interview, they're on with their lawyer who's with them the entire time. And she talks about being a Republican her whole life. And she's been a conservative born and bred. They talk about how their parents have conservative perspectives. I mean, they're Democrats, but they, they're conservative in their views. And we're conservatives too. And the brother stops the other one and says, well, we have conservative views, right? They, they're playing with this idea so of they're, being they're conservative they're full on in the culture wars. I mean, they're full on That's, Exactly. They're wearing, culture war they're wearing MAGA hats. Absolutely. They're wearing MAGA hats. They are playing into this, this idea that they are these conservatives because black black they are these black men that these white people are falling in love with. And you can see where the the their lawyer has posted the videos of them, and you can see the comments back from people like, Oh, they're such great guys. I love these boys. They're so Jared, fantastic. I'm really rooting for them. It's crazy. Jared, you just called them the new diamond and silk. Sounds like. <laughs> Ariva, don't be putting stuff in my mouth now. <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, but I mean, you know, one of them has died and, you know, God bless her soul. But that's what it sounds like. I, you know, I, I don't know if the audience knew I mean, what you're revealing, which is they've gone full on MAGA on us uh, and they've become totally immersed in that culture. L let me ask you this, Shelly, as, as you think about Diamond and Silk. Uh, 
Jared. Shelly, have you <laughs> shared this information? <laughs> have you shared this information with Jesse, his legal team, or anyone? I mean, I would imagine they would want this information. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've been publishing since the beginning. So yeah, eventually um Fanya Davis, who's Angela Davis's sister, reached out to me and I shared everything with her, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, they have it for sure. And you know, the the thing is with this, independent media will publish it. And I know people want to know, like people do want to know this, but it's the mainstream media. You can't get it through. They won't question CPD's narrative, which is mm. pretty amazing, you know. So that's where the struggle is. Like we can get it out in independent media. Uh, a lot of radio shows like Santita Jackson in Chicago has been talking about it since the beginning. Melina Abdullah there in L.A., um, a lot of people. But it's just the mainstream media won't allow this information to come out so far. Yeah, what is the response? It sounds like, Jared, you've watched, I haven't had a chance to, to look at this Jesse Smollett anatomy of a hoax. Uh, what's been the response? You know, if you can judge that based on social media content or posts sure. uh, after it was streamed. I would say it's been tepid at best. I mean, I, I don't know how many folks are streaming Fox Nation, the Fox News uh, streaming service. I don't imagine many are. But the feedback that I have seen from the few people people that have been tweeting about it has been kind of falling in love with these brothers, um, perpetuating the idea that Jesse's a liar, like, of course he did, and making this some kind of leftist liberal kind of thing. You you were asking, like, what is our plan for this? Or what are we hoping to do with this information? And like, to be fully transparent, we have been working on telling this story in the documentary, right? We've been trying to pitch this story to be told as a documentary, and it has not been able to move. Even when you lay out the evidence, even when people are interested in what you're talking about, even when they can say, oh, wow, I see what you mean, or oh, that's really interesting, or oh, I didn't know that. But like, it doesn't move anywhere. But we're stuck between this tension of like making a, a documentary to be able to tell this story and it actually being a real person's life, right? right. This is kind of back in, in the forefront now and we're working on it more public facing than in behind the scenes right now because there is a Fox Nation documentary out. We do have the brothers out here talking about what they supposedly did. We do have people now talking about this conversation again, but also Jesse's on appeal, right? You talked about the, right. the short stint that Jesse served in jail. He's supposed to serve, he's, he, sold, he has served seven days already, but has a remaining part of his sentence that is on appeal. His, his lawyers, his uh, legal team has submitted their paperwork. There's a 45-day waiting period for the next piece and another 45 at the end. And so this still is still an active story that is happening right now in front of our eyes. But like, it's important that people understand what the facts are about this case. And as much as we'd like to make a documentary and be able to tell the story more widely, it's more important that we get the information out to people that they know what this story, what is happening in the story, and they, they can see it with their own eyes. I remember, Jared and Shelley, when the story first broke, there were lots of high-profile entertainers uh, that came forward to support Jesse. Now that you've been able to, to publish this, and I know you're saying you haven't been able to get it widely published in mainstream media, more independent media outlets, have you seen that same level of support coming forward from at least the Black entertainment world? Like Lee Daniels was one of the folks who really was vocal in support of Jesse at the beginning. Where are those folks now, if you know? Uh, give it to me in about 10 We've seconds, Jared. We've been starting to take meetings to start showing people what this evidence looks like and to be able to kind of give them another perspective on what actually happened. The thing is, people are kind of like, well, this happened a long time ago. We're not so concerned about it, but we're working on it right now. 
Well, because the so, impact is huge. The impact in culture is huge in society yeah, from this. No, you guys, thank you for your work. Thank you for digging deep on this story. Thank you for sharing it with us at KPLA. Uh, great work always, Jared. Good to see you, my friend. And thank you so much, Shelly, for your work. We're going to continue to follow this uh, and see. You know, uh, you never know. Folks are watching KPLA all the time. So this might be your lucky break in terms of mainstream media. Stay with us. The Raw Report is up next after some sports news and traffic right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.